0: And Father, as we study on in Revelation tonight, I pray that you'll open our eyes. These are uh, challenging things we're going to study tonight. And I pray that you would give us complete understanding. And as we prayed for this morning, Father, I don't pray for knowledge. I pray for transformation. I pray that you will change us from where we are to what you would have us be. The people that you created us to be. So bless your word tonight. I pray for a blessing on all of us as we study together and look into these things. Thank you, Father, for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Revelation 17. Before we get there, in fact, I have a few things I need to do before we get there. But the first is I want to read you this article. You may have heard about this uh, last week. I just downloaded this off of foxnews.com. Presbyterians suggest gender-inclusive language in worship. What does that mean? I'll read this to you. Birmingham, Alabama. The Divine Trinity... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could now be known as Mother, Child, and Womb, or Rock, Redeemer, and Friend, as some Presbyterian Church USA services under an action Monday by the Church's National Assembly decided. Delegates to the meeting voted to receive a policy paper on the gender-inclusive language for the Trinity, a step short of approving it. That means Church officials can propose experimental liturgies with alternative phrasings for the Trinity, but congregations won't be required to use them. This does not alter the Church's theological position, but provides an educational resource to enhance the spiritual life of our membership, Legislative Committee Chair Nancy Oldhoff, an Iowa laywoman, said during Monday's debate on the Trinity. This is what happens when committees form goes on to say, uh, the assembly narrowly defeated a conservative bid to refer the paper back for further study. So I I want you to understand, I'm not trying to bash on the Presbyterian Church USA. Uh, There are those in the Presbyterian Church USA who are completely against this. However, it has been um, proposed. Uh, a panel that worked on the issue since 2000. So for the last six years, they've been working on the issue of the language for the Trinity. And they said the classical language should still be used, but added that Presbyterians should also seek fresh ways to speak of the mystery of the triune God. To quote, expand the church's vocabulary of praise and wonder. So one reason is that uh, limited, uh, one reason is that limited language to the Father and Son quote has been used to support the idea that God is male and that men are superior to women. The panel said. Yeah, I have no problem with that. Um, yeah, kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. So conservative responded that the church should stick close to the way God is named in the Bible and noted that Jesus' most famous prayer was ad- addressed to our Father. Now, besides mother, child, and womb for the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, rock, redeemer, and friend, uh, they also proposed lover, beloved, and love, creator, savior, sanctifier, king of glory, prince of peace, spirit of love, And early in Monday's business session, the Presbyterian Assembly sang a revised version of a familiar doxology, Praise God, from whom all blessings flow, that avoided male nouns and pronouns for God. So that's in the Presbyterian Church of the USA. i read that to you because it falls right in line with what we're going to study tonight, and that's religion. We're going to look at religion, and you're going to see it in Revelation 17. Father, Son, Holy Spirit could now be at least in one branch of the church referred to as mother, child, and womb. Well, let's just double check here how Jesus referred to the Trinity. Matthew 18, 28, 18-20, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority... ...has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, masculine, and the Son, masculine, and the Holy Spirit, masculine, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age... Now, Jesus was not a chauvinist, and I'm not trying to be chauvinistic in saying that God, is, God as a father is masculine in verbiage. But throughout the Bible, that's how he's referenced. It's like saying, you know, Pastor Rick as a man It's just a little bit too intimidating as a pastor. So we're going to start referring to Pastor Rick in the generic sense. Please don't do that. Because I happen to be a man. That's what I am. It's who I am, it, you know, it's, it's what I was created to be. My wife, wonderfully, <laughs> was created to be a woman. Wouldn't work out real well for me if it wasn't that way. It's looking at the way God is, characteristically in his nature, and trying to alter that. The Bible's very clear. God was very clear. He, for his purposes, chose to be seen as Father. Chose to be seen in the flesh as son. Chose as his spirit to be the comforter. And though there are feminine aspects to the Lord, definitely, he has chosen to place himself in a male perspective. And I don't see altering that as a real good idea. Jesus wasn't talking about religion when he said to go and make disciples in all the earth. Jesus was talking about relationship, a life-saving relationship, person by person, disciple by disciple in the world. And a relationship with Jesus is not predicated on who you want him to be, it is predicated on who he is, period. And what I think about Jesus is actually irrelevant. Who is he? And Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? To Peter. As we said this morning, and Peter blurted out, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Wonderful answer, Peter. You're not bright enough to figure that that out on your own. My Father told you that. Because that is the truth. Mm -hmm. Now, People will come along, as the Presbyterian Church in the USA is doing at this point, and they want to tamper with this self-determined masculine expression of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why does that happen? And why do we keep seeing these problems in the church generic, the church across, uh, across the world? Why do we keep seeing these committees and these councils coming together trying to change what is scriptural? Well, the attempt to make, more, to make religion more gender-inclusive... Exclu- And even more feminine in nature Which you notice it's not Trying to just change it to Rock, Redeemer, and Friend But it's changing it to Mother, Child, and Womb I just got to tell you I'm not sure how the Holy Spirit Feels about being called Womb The Holy Womb It's just It just I don't know It it bugs me It's wrong Thank you It's wrong But it's not new With the Presbyterian Church USA It's not even new With the recent buzz Over the Da Vinci Code This has been going on all the way back to the world's earliest religion. And when I say that, I'm very specific in the language I use. The world's earliest religion. It doesn't reach back to the earliest God-to-man relationship as described in the Bible, as described in Genesis, between Adam and God, the creator, masculine creator. It goes back to the first and earliest world religion. And Revelation 17 tonight is going to describe the end Of the first world religion as we will study it. Now, listen to this closely. We're just a couple of chapters away from hearing about the church again in the book of Revelation. You remember the church, right? The church that hasn't been around in our study since chapter 3. Chapters 4 and 5, we see a picture in heaven, and when we can make some assumptions, I think correctly that the church is there. And we've talked about how in chapters 2 and 3 we get a picture of the whole church age across, across the last 2,000 years. But the church is mysteriously absent from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 19. You don't even hear the word church used not a single time. Why? Because we're absent from the tribulation. Again, I mentioned this morning talking to this young woman outside of Starbucks and her questions about, you know, are we about to go through some bad things? And the first question I had to ask her was, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you do, then the answer to that question is simple no. You're not about to go through the bad things that are planned for this world. Because we're not destined for wrath, but for salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, long about 18, tells us that. So the church is absent. I want you to be aware of that. As we look at the things we're looking at tonight, the church is not here. It's present in heaven. It's gone. It's been safely tucked away on that seven-year honeymoon with the Lord. But, though the church is gone, religion is alive and well on planet Earth throughout the tribulation. Religion will be here. A form of church, a one-world church, will exist during that time. You might say, well, what religion is that? And what is this oldest religion that also is going to be the last religion destroyed in Revelation 17 the answer to that is mystery Babylon Revelation 17 verse 1 Then one of the seven angels, who had had the seven bowls, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Understand, the bowl judgments are complete at this point. Three and a half years, and the last three and a half years of the tribulation, almost done with, when you get to Revelation 17 and 18, we're in the waning days. There is not much time left. As a matter of fact, Revelation 18 will happen in the space of one hour of earth's time. So that chapter will happen in about the time it's going to take me to teach it to you. But Revelation 17, we're in the final days. So we're not talking years. We're not talking about a span of judgment. We're talking about a blast, a single judgment that happens very quickly at the very tail end of this tribulation period. But reading on, it says, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality and on her forehead a name was written now the NASB says a mystery, the word a is not there, it should literally read a name was written mystery Babylon the great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus and when I saw her I wondered greatly, perhaps some of you are wondering greatly at this picture And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So here we are at the end of the tribulation period and John sees this vision. An amazing vision that brings him a certain degree of consternation, of wonder, of curiosity. It's a fantastic vision and he doesn't quite understand what's going on. Who is this woman atop or astride the beast? What does this sign mean? John at this point has witnessed the final wrath of God played out on earth. Seven bowl judgments poured out on the planet as we've said. And now he's carried away in the spirit into the wilderness. Not up to heaven. Remember, location is important in the study of the book. He is now in the wilderness. He is on earth in a wilderness place. And he's seeing this vision. John's always very clear about location And I've said this before You want to mark that as you study through Revelation Look for the location Make sure you know where you are There's a lot of confusion over what the meaning is of this book it Has come from not understanding where you are And John is very clear So we're on earth in the wilderness or in a wilderness And he sees something that he literally can't make heads or tails of Probably because there are so many heads and tails And it's confusing to him So he doesn't understand it But before we get to what all this means, and we're going to in just a few minutes, I need to give you a brief history of religion. The Bible has been referred to by some, and I think wisely so, as the Tale of Two Cities. The first city being Jerusalem, and that's God's city. We've talked a lot about Jerusalem over the past couple of years, really. It's seen early on in the pages of Genesis, and it's key throughout Scripture as the city God chose for Himself. A quick few points about Jerusalem. It's mentioned over 2,000 times in the Bible. By the way, it's not mentioned once in the Koran, but that's another study for another time. It's mentioned over 2,000 times, and Ezekiel 5, verse 5, Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. It's the city that God chose for himself, and the Bible states this specifically 11 times. Jerusalem is the city I have chosen, God says. 11 different times it says that in the Scripture. It's the city that even bears his name. 1 Kings 11.36, the Lord says, Jerusalem is the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. Now, some of you may remember that when Sharon uh, and I got back from Jerusalem, I mentioned that if you, if you got an aerial view of Jerusalem, you would see the three valleys that cross through or cut through Jerusalem, and they are in the shape of the Jewish or the Hebrew letter Shem. That letter Shem for the Hebrew is the letter that means Shaddai or God. And so very literally, even geographically, God's name is in Jerusalem, based in those three valleys. It's fascinating to see that. Now the Jewish Babylonian Talmud, that is the, the Jewish oral traditions that were written down while they were in Babylonian captivity, says the following about Jerusalem. says, of the ten measures of beauty that came down to the world, Jerusalem took nine. Obviously written by someone who was sitting in Babylon thinking back to the glory of Jerusalem, the beauty of it in the day in which they lived there before they were hauled off to Babylon. It also says in the Babylonian Talmud, Israel lies at the center of the earth and Jerusalem lies at the center of Israel. And we know prophetically in the future that Jesus will return to and reign from Jerusalem. It is God's city. But in this tale of two cities... Beginning in Jerusalem, running all the way through, or beginning in Genesis, running all the way through Revelation, there is another city with a dark past and a very dark future, and that's Babylon. Babylon. For as much as Jerusalem is God's city in the Scriptures and in history, Babylon is Satan's city. In the Bible, Babylon is mentioned over 300 times, from cover to cover. We've already mentioned or heard Babylon's name mentioned twice in Revelation and neither one was positive. Revelation 14.8 tells us another angel, a second one followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And Revelation 16.19 tells us that Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So what we're told in verse 19 of Revelation 16, now we see unfold In Revelation 17, Babylon, the mother of the harlots of the earth, now is going to drink that cup of God's wrath. We have an indication of how Babylon ends, and we're going to look at that in a few minutes again tonight. But how did Babylon begin? What's the history there? Some of you know this. And what does it have to do with this age-old mysterious pagan religion? I'm going to give you a little background tonight. Some of this you may have heard earlier in our study, back when we looked at Thyatira in Revelation 3. But going back to the beginning, and just track with me carefully on this tonight, Babylon was founded by an interesting and infamous personality. Does anyone know the name of the guy who founded Babylon? Nimrod. Nimrod. Excellent. Nimrod was his name. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, tells us now Cush... Remember, there were three sons of Noah, one being Cush, um, son or grandson? Grandson. Grandson, right. Cush being the grandson of Noah, it says, became the father of Nimrod, and he became a mighty one on the earth. The Bible says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And Erek, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Shinar is Iraq. Babylon is in Iraq. Even ancient Babylon, the remnant of it, is in Iraq today. And if you were to go there, you could see it. But what's interesting is he's called a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod is. Before is best translated in the face of or against. For Nimrod was against the Lord. The very name Nimrod means we will rebel. So Nimrod comes along in Genesis 10 and tells us, and he builds this this city. And then he founds in this city a tower. A tower that the city was built around. The tower was called Bab-El, which means gate of God. Bab-El. And Genesis 11 verse 1 tells us the following. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Now, Babel, the tower of Babel, was not built up to heaven, it was built unto heaven. Which tells us the purpose of Babel. Not the plan, not that it was just built to be tall, as tall a building as they could make. But it was built unto heaven. It was built for the purpose of getting a a closer picture of heaven. It was a ziggurat, a tower for the worship and study of astrological signs. That was the purpose of the Tower of Babel. To get closer to heaven, to deepen the the mysticism and the mythology and and the idea of of the zodiac. And that human designation for Babel, meaning gate to God, is interesting. The name Babylon itself means heaven's gate. God changed it. God's name for Babel is not Babel, it's Babel. <laughs> confusion. The word literally was changed to confusion. It was all based, gang, in a religion, in an, east, in an, in an ancient paganism, ancient Babylon. Mystery Babylon was the first religion on the face of the planet. It was the first pagan, anti-against-God religion. World religion is always confusing as Babel became a place of confusion. World religion is always babbling nonsense. Calling the Holy Spirit the womb to me is babbling nonsense. We have a name for the spirit. Comforter. Helper. Paraclete in the Greek. One who comes alongside Spirit of God Spirit of Christ Very clearly the scriptures refer to the Holy Spirit of the living God not, not the womb That's just confusion That's babbling nonsense And that's what world religion does Now as the story continues History tells us that the man Nimrod Married a woman named Semiramis. Now some of you are familiar with this Again we studied it a little bit early on in our Revelation study I need to bring this back to mind It's important tonight Semiramis was married to Nimrod, but unfortunately for them, Nimrod was apparently killed by a wild boar. Semiramis and all of Nimrod's people mourned by denying themselves pleasure and fasting for 40 days. There's a custom in Rome today that grew directly out of this. It's a 40-day period of denial and fasting. It's called Lent. That's the history of Lent. It is pre-Catholic. Suddenly, Semiramis then discovers, after Nimrod is apparently gone, or some some versions of the story say he was away, but she discovers in, her, in his absence, probably after his death, that she is supernaturally pregnant. That somehow she is with a child, and Nimrod himself, she believed, or she taught, was alive inside of her. It was the spirit of this past Nimrod. This all happened in the springtime. And Semiramis had an egg fashioned from gold to celebrate it. It was called the golden egg of Astarte. And those around her colored eggs to celebrate. And they worshiped rabbits as signs of fertility and called the celebration Ishtar, which is where we get Easter. Semiramis gave birth to a son that she named Tammuz. Now, Tammuz is an interesting character, and he's not just a a figment of someone's imagination. Tammuz is even referred to in the Bible. His name is there. In fact, Tammuz, you might not know this, is one of the months on the Jewish calendar today. Where did that come from? Their captivity in a place called Babylon. While they were in Babylon, the Hebrew calendar was developed. And it was from that point that they came back and Tammuz is now, today, a month on the Hebrew calendar. So, Semiramis gives birth to the son Tammuz, a so-called miraculous birth. But wait, there's even more. The child Tammuz himself was said to die suddenly in the dead of winter at the time of the winter solstice. And legend maintains that Tammuz came back from the dead. A resurrection. So, in celebration, those of the Babylonian mystery religion put a log in the fire, called in the Chaldean language, the Babylonian language, a Yule that's the Babylonian word for child. And then they brought evergreen trees inside the homes. They decorated them with gold and silver to celebrate the return of Tammuz from the dead. Now, the nice thing is we're heading into summer, so we've passed Easter, we've passed Christmas. We don't really have to deal with this until next year. Okay? But Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 talk very specifically about people bringing trees into their homes and decorating them as a pagan thing. God was angry with Israel for doing it because it was a pagan mystery religion. It was connected to this Babylonian paganism. Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 14 talks about the women of Israel sitting in the gate and weeping for Tammuz. Well, what's that all about? It was a practice of Babylonian paganism that went all the way back. The practice of weeping for Tammuz, going through the motions. And this woman, Semiramis, who now led this Babylonian mystery religion, took for herself a very interesting name that has been applied to somebody else in religion, the Queen of Heaven. Now, if you're Catholic or have a Catholic background, you know that Mary is called the Queen of Heaven. That is the title of Mary in Catholicism. Rick, are you about to bash on Catholicism tonight? No. Stay with me. You have to stay all the way to the end of the study to know that I'm not just bashing on Catholicism. But this whole story of Nimrod and Semiramis and all this, you may say, Rick, that, that, that's unbelievable. I, I can't buy into that. Gang, there, are, there are statues that have been discovered and pictures of mother and child that date back thousands of years before Jesus. That date back to ancient Babylon. And this ancient pagan religion. That mother-child image is not new with Mary and Jesus. And as a matter of fact, what's interesting is though this is how Jesus came into the world, we're never told in scripture to worship the child. We're never told in Scripture to worship the mother. And we're never told to lift up this image of mother and child at all. In fact, what does God say in Scripture? You don't make any graven images. Of anything in earth below or of anything in the heaven above, you stay away from graven images because you cannot compete, you cannot compare to the spirit of the living God. Now, let me tell you a little bit more here. This whole thing, by the way, is just a diabolical counterfeit of the story of Christ. Now if this shakes a little bit your faith in Jesus, you think, well, what if Jesus and his birth and that whole thing is a counterfeit? We're okay here. Remember, I've told you, and there are so many other ways to look at this, but the prophecies of Christ that were fulfilled by Christ alone bear up the truth of Christ. The genealogy of Christ, remember this, in Matthew chapter 1, the first 11 verses, that genealogy that contains so many different ways of, of, uh, of sevens, the number seven, throughout that genealogy, it's mind-boggling when you look at that. We looked at that earlier in our, in our Revelation study as well. The Bible is very clear and it's very true and it's very provable. And so you don't have to worry about this undermining the story of Christ. But it's exactly what Satan has wanted to do from the very beginning, is undermine the story of Jesus however he can. Even if that means, if I can get a pagan counterfeit over here, then people over here are going to go, oh, what's the difference? How do I know this is true and that's not true? How do I know that we haven't just made this whole thing up? Satan is very crafty. And there's a reason, by the way, Satan did what he did. I'll get there in just a second. This whole Babylonian mystery religion, it grew with the aid of the Babylonian high priest. In point of fact, the highest priest of the Babylonian mystery religion was called the Keeper of the Keys. Supposedly the Keeper of the Keys to the Gate of Heaven. And the whole fable, again, as a diabolical counterfeit, uh, it points us to something interesting here. Can anyone guess what the Chaldean phrase for the Keeper of the Keys is? It's actually kind of tough to guess, so I'm just going to tell you. The keeper of the keys in the Chaldean is Pontifex Maximus, which is what the Pope is referred to. And gang, this is not Rick making this up. This is history. Pontifex Maximus preceded the first of the Popes. Again, by hundreds if not thousands of years. The primary role of the Babylonian high priest was to focus worship on the Queen of Heaven and her little child, the Madonna and Child statue, as I talked about, that predates Roman Catholicism by at least a couple thousand years, all the way back, well, probably four thousand years, back to Babylonian paganism. In Roman culture, the mother and child picture is called Venus and Cupid. In Greek culture, it's called Eris and Aphrodite. In Egyptian culture, Isis and Horus. In Babylon, Semiramis and Tammuz. Even Asian cultures have their mother and child mystery religions. And in the Old Testament, they're called very specifically Ashtaroth and Baal. It is unsettling how close this all runs to the gospel. And you may ask, okay, but how can this possibly happen? And the answer is very clear. Because Satan was around front and center when God declared his divine plan to bring Jesus into the world through Mary. In fact, Satan is the one God was talking to when we hear the first mention of the Gospel. Genesis 3.15, it's called the Proto-Evangelicum, the beginning of the Gospel. God is speaking in curse to Satan. Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And it's subtle, but it's there. Between your seed, Satan your followers, and her seed. The Hebrew word for seed is Zerah and it literally means sperm. Listen to how out there that sounds. I'm going to put enmity, enmity, Satan, between your seed and her sperm. Well, biologically, that's impossible. Because women don't have sperm. Women have eggs. It's men who have the seeds. And again, this is the first mention of the gospel of scripture. The first indication that God is going to bring himself through a seed. Miraculously, he's going to plant a seed in woman. Miraculously, Jesus would come through woman. And even later, we have more proof of this. Just after that, in Genesis chapter 4, Eve thought that her birth of her firstborn son Cain was a miraculous birth. She thought she apparently didn't understand that it was because of Adam that she was having Cain. She didn't connect the two yet, you know? Adam over here and then suddenly she's pregnant. She didn't understand. Here's how I know this. Genesis 4:1 says the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and she said, "I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord." But in Hebrew it doesn't say with the help of In the Hebrew, the literal translation is, Eve said, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. I've just given birth to the Lord. I have just had a miraculous birth. In other words, and I I think, I don't think we're reading too much into this. Maybe I am. I'll let you decide. But Eve literally thought that this miracle birth that God had talked about prior to this was happening to her. That she was giving birth to the miracle child who was going to crush the Satan, the demon, who is going to crush the serpent, who is going to take out Satan. Cain turned out not to be such a good thing. You know, the mother who has a little child and looks and says, "Oh, is he precious? Is he perfect?" And then he grows up. And some of you know what I'm talking about. They grow up, and they're not as pretty and precious and perfect as they were that first day give them two weeks and they're not as pretty and precious and perfect as they seem to be on that first day but listen again Satan was the one God was talking to when he delivered this proto-evangelicum this early words of the gospel the curse of the seed of woman was spoken directly at the serpent what does he do with that he turns around and does exactly what Satan has done from day one he counterfeits he takes it and runs with it and tries to come up with a, a similar but slightly different picture And in so doing, brings religion into the world and confuses. There's a book out I was just talking with a friend about yesterday called Under the Banner of Heaven. Anybody read that? About Mormonism? Mm -hmm. And in this book, what's frightening about it is if you read it, the language that the Mormon church uses for spiritual gifts and for the moving of the spirit is almost identical to what people in Christianity use. And yet, it resulted in the Mormon church in... Not just one, but actually multiple murders of people who wouldn't accept the faith. That book is, what I've heard and I haven't read it yet, um, very disturbing. This friend who was talking to me about it was saying it was just very disturbing because suddenly I didn't want to have anything to do with anything prophetic. I didn't want to have anything to do with speaking in tongues or, or, or a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. I just wanted to step back from it completely because I see that in the Mormon church is used exactly the way we use it. But that's what Satan does. He gets as close to the truth as possible and he tweaks it. And he twists it. And he takes a relationship and turns it into a religion. And that's where we begin to fall. Because Satan, gang, he is hell-bent on upsetting the plan of God. A little more history here. The Babylonian Empire collapsed. It was overrun by the Medes and Persians, and at that point, many Babylonians left Babylon. When it collapsed, Babylonians taking the mystery of pagan religion with them, and they moved down south to a place called Pergamum. Pergamum that you can read about in Revelation 2. Revelation 2 and 3, where the city of Pergamus. there was a letter written to the church there. And Pergamum means objectionable marriage, And in church history, there was a marriage of church and state. We know that happened long about 312, a little after that, with Constantine and following, that the Roman state became or married the church and became the Roman church. Now, Rome never drove out paganism. They just made a few changes, mixed a few religious ideas together, and combined a few rituals. I told you before that there's even a Roman coin you can look at in in the British History um, Museum of History. This coin has on one side of it, it's a coin that was minted by Constantine, and on one side it has the sign of the cross, and on the other side it has pagan symbols. The marriage of paganism and Christianity, an objectionable marriage. Rome Christianized paganism and paganized Christianity. Brought the two together. And the pagan priests, and this is what's amazing, rather than being all driven out of Rome at the time, the pagan priests kept their jobs. They just now became Christian priests instead of pagan priests. By the way, it was in 366 A.D. that Damascus, the bishop of the church in Rome, took that pagan title for himself, Keeper of the Keys, Pontifex Maximus. That was the first time it was used by a Roman pope, 366 A.D. But the paganism of those days spread and spilled over into all of Christendom. And you can find traces of Temus and suggestions of Semiramis, and even pieces of the pontiff, scattered all throughout Christianity, and throughout the world's religions. And Jesus gives a name, finally, to this historical, worldwide, religious system. Verse 5, he calls it, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the whole earth. Now this is important. He doesn't call it, the mother of the harlot. He calls it the mother of harlots. Because it's not simply one church, or one denomination, or one sect, or one cult. Mystery Babylon is the universal culmination of all sorts of world religions. It's any time a group of people determine that they are going to go the way of man, the way of the flesh, and become religious, rather than pursuing Jesus in relationship. And when that happens, that's when churches get off track, when we begin to be more concerned with religion. And we are with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me give you four notes now on the mother of all harlots. Revelation 17, going back to verse 1. Four notes on the mother of all harlots. Number one, she has a universal power. The angel said, come here, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And down again in verse 5, Mystery Babylon the Great. She has a universal power. A universal power. What are, what are the many waters? If you look down in verse 15, it tells us. Revelation 17, 15. He said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The many waters are portrayal here, John tells us, he explains to us, of the entire world of all of the peoples on planet earth this woman sits with universal power universal influence her influence is pervasive over all the world and by the way the appeal of this mystery Babylonian religion of this pagan cult the appeal is especially strong in the realms of kings and rulers and if you look back over history the rulers who have climbed in bed with the church in Rome over the years is astounding How many? Even today, even today, when our own president goes before the Pope, he kneels and bows down because it's the politically correct thing to do. You come before the Pope today and you're a ruler of some other nation, you still bow before the Pope, kiss the ring. It's amazing. By the way, not the least of which of all these world rulers was Hitler during the Jewish Holocaust. Hitler and the Roman Church were in bed together at that time. They were very tightly connected. In fact, the extermination of the Jews was directly out of Roman Catholic teaching during the time. They were Christ killers, the Jews. They were the ones who hung them on the cross. It was their fault. Therefore, their extermination is not a bad idea. It's a good idea. God threw with the Jews and it will please God to wipe them off the face of the earth. This is what Hitler believed. He was a very strong Roman Catholic. Interesting. By the way, when you think about the fact that no religious body in history has ever held the power and influence of the Roman Catholic Church, understand the word Catholic simply means universal. When it was first employed in the church, the word Catholic just meant, you know, reaching out universally across Christendom, across Christianity. Now this mystery Babylon not only has a universal power, she has a unique position, verse 3. I was carried away in the wilderness, he said. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. A unique position. This representative of pagan religion, nearly as old as time, and traced all the way back to Babylon's Semiramis, is now riding on the back of a beast. Well, who is the beast? Well, we've already heard this name applied to Antichrist. But I think we're dealing both with Antichrist and his union of European states. A little more history for you. In 1948, by the way, the precise year that Israel became a nation, in that year, Holland, Luxembourg, and Belgium joined forces in what was called the Benelux Treaty. It was the first seedling, sapling, if you will, of today's European Union. Now, is that coincidental? But the same year Israel becomes a nation, the European Union is formed. At least its beginnings began there. By 1957, three more nations, Italy, West Germany and Great Britain, signed on to this European community in the Treaty of Rome, which then became the European Economic Community. And currently, there are now some 25 nations involved in what is called the European Union, whose symbol and logo, and we talked about this in a recent prophecy study, I I guess it's been maybe a year ago, whose symbol and logo is a character from Greek mythology named Europa. If you go online today and look up Europa, look up pictures of Europa, you will see a woman riding a beast. That's what Europa is. And that's Greek mythology, a woman that rides a beast. You can also find a woman riding a beast on minted... European Union coins. You can find a picture of a woman riding a beast on an Italian stamp that was uh, made for the European Union. There's a Time Magazine article. Uh, in fact, I have some of these pictures on my computer. If you want to see it after our study, I'll show you this. A Time Magazine cover story about the European Union and the picture on it is a woman on the back of a huge bull, and little flags of all the different countries of the European Union. Europa, the woman who rides the beast. And here we have a woman sitting on a scarlet beast with blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. I have said this before when we studied this. I think if I was going to develop something like the European Union, I would have been careful not to come up with a woman riding a beast. You know, someone was not reading their scriptures at the time they did it, or the reality is the prophecy, as we've said many times, is not what might happen, it's what God has already seen. It's what has happened. And so what we see here is the world playing right into exactly what God declares in scripture Will happen. Just another proof, by the way, of the veracity of, of Scripture of the Bible. What about these ten horns? Speaks of a ten-nation confederation. And even now, European nations are jockeying for the top ten spots. When these first three uh, co- countries, Holland, Luxembourg, and Belgium, joined together in the Benelux Treaty, they called themselves the Big Ten because they were looking for they wanted to be ten nations strong in one one confederation of nations. And so here we see, interestingly, again, this beast has seven heads and ten horns. Now, the prophet Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, declared that an eleventh horn, called in that chapter Little Horn, will come along. He'll rip out three of the horns, three of the nations, three of the kings or rulers, and he will control the rest. So you have ten horns, ten nations, three are going to be ripped out, and you see, again, seven heads here. So what about the seven heads? Well, hold on to your saddles and look at verse 4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup, a gold cup, full of abominations. I wonder if that's a picture of a holy grail. And of the unclean things of her immorality. So not only does she have a universal power, not only does she have a unique position, but this woman riding the beast has unimaginable prosperity. Unimaginable prosperity. She's wearing purple and scarlet. These are the colors of royalty. A color originally, by the way, worn by the Caesars of Rome. And today it's the color worn by the cardinals in Rome. Scarlet was the color worn by Mystery Babylon's high priest as well. The scarlet. Scarlet, The woman astride the beast is incredibly wealthy. Look at verse 4. She's got gold and precious stones and pearls, the gold cup. She is a picture of wealth astride this beast. And listen to this, and I had to go back and double check this, but it's mind-blowing. The church in Rome today is 97%, well, it's richer than 97% of the nations on planet Earth. Of the nations, not of other religions. Is that combined? That's even more stunning. The largest wealth in the church of Rome. Unbelievable. The Vatican is a sovereign state in and of itself. And it's within the city of Rome. And its wealth and its holdings are vast. And how did they come up with this wealth? Well, look at the history. Look at the history of the church in Rome and where it's come from. We've previously talked about everything from the sale of indulgences in the Middle Ages, paying ahead for sin to come, which people wanted to pay for, buying their way out of purgatory. There was so much fear in those dark ages, which is an apt name for the time when the Catholic Church was pervasive in its power. And in all of this, buying people their way into the papacy, (laughs) papacy, trying to get out of purgatory this gained treasures untold the church in that time could go, could come out against somebody a large wealthy landowner and say sir this guy's a sinner in the Spanish Inquisition people were thrown into jail for lies simply so the church could get its hands on the wealth and so the Roman Catholic Church became vastly wealthy over the ages by the way the doctrine of purgatory it didn't originate with Catholicism Purgatory as a concept originated with Mystery Babylon, early paganism. It was there a long time before the Catholic Church adopted this idea of going to a place like Hades, paying for your sins over a certain amount of time, and then getting out. Now you might ask, Rick, where are you getting all your outside information aside from the Bible? Let me give you five books that you can jot down. I'll give them to you quickly. If you need them again, I'll give them to you at the end. Five books that some are uh, easy reads, a couple of them are very very difficult reads. Uh, Alexander Hislop wrote a book called The Two Babylons. It's a tough read, but it's very interesting. Alexander Hislop, The Two Babylons. His information is vast. Sir Robert Anderson wrote two books that you ought to have on your shelves Babylon Then and Now. Babylon Then and Now. And Robert Anderson, Sir Robert Anderson, also wrote a fantastic book that I just read last year called The Coming Prince. Sir Robert Anderson was in the Scotland Yard, was an investigator, and was a very strong Christian. And he began to investigate some history. He wrote The Coming Prince back in around 1857, somewhere around there. And it's one of the best books on Antichrist that I've ever read. The Coming, Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. It's another book called Fifty Years in the Church in Rome by Father Charles Chiniquay, a priest who wrote of the atrocities that he saw firsthand going on in the church in Rome, in Roman Catholicism. And finally, one of the best books that you can get on this subject, and it's one of the bravest that he's written, although he's written some other very brave books as well, a man by the name of Dave Hunt wrote A Woman Rides the Beast. And that one will, it's a shocker. It's an eye-opener for you, and you might want to get a hold of that one. If you don't get any of the five, get that one, A Woman Rides the Beast by Dave Hunt. So that's just some background for you where I've gotten some of this information. Going on. Who wrote the fourth one? Which one was the fourth one? Fifty years Father, of the church. Father Charles Chiniquay, C H I N I Q U Y, 50 years in the Church of Rome. Verse 5. <clears throat> on her forehead now was written a mystery, or was written. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the harlots of the abominations of the earth. And I saw, verse 6, the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Number four, this woman has given unbelievable persecution. The church in Rome has given unbelievable persecution. Rick, you're just targeting Roman Catholicism. Not quite. Again, stick with me. Death in the name of religion in world history is one of the great notions of paganism. Believe what we believe or you will be killed. Now, this is, again, this is what Islam does today. You have two choices. Submit, which is what Islam means, or die. That's it. You either join or you are, that's at least what the Koran calls for, death to the infidel. And in in notions of paganism, this whole idea is brought about the greatest travesty in the history of the so-called church. This phrase here, the blood of the saints, refers to all the blood spilled from God's people Israel throughout history at the hands of paganism. And this woman, this picture of world religion, historically pagan world religion, is drunk on the blood of the saints. Anyone who's ever truly given their life in faith to Jesus Christ or in faith to the Father who has died at the hands of paganism. The blood of the saints. Unbelievable persecution. The blood of the witnesses of Jesus specifically then refers to, obviously, Christians who have died for their faith. And John at this point, he says, I I wonder greatly. He is overwhelmed by what he sees. Why is John so amazed and so confused by this vision? Because think about this. When John received this, the persecution was against the church. But what he's seeing is that persecution comes from the church. And he couldn't understand that. He was in a time when Rome was the enemy. John lived in a time when Christians were being slaughtered right and left for their faith in Jesus Christ and could not imagine a time where there would be a religious body that would then be persecuting Christians in this way. He lived through some 40 years of persecution. By the way, over 10 waves of persecution, beginning around A.D. 60 and running to 312, there are estimates of some 5 to 7 million Christians who were slaughtered by Rome. And then in the early 300s, 312 and on, Christianity and Rome got married. Can you even imagine a man and a woman marrying When the man was responsible for the death of the woman's entire family? And yet that's what happened with the church in Rome. Rome had slaughtered the Christians until that point when suddenly they decided to get in bed together. And John wonders at this woman, this religion, who's now responsible for drinking the blood of God's people, of Israel, and of Christians over time, But he couldn't have known that the office of the Inquisitions of the Roman Church is responsible today for the deaths of 50 million Christians. The office of the Inquisition. August 5th, 1522 A.D., 135,000 people in one day, all Christians were killed by the order of the Holy See because they wouldn't bend a knee to the papal church. These were Christians who were slaughtered by the Roman Church. Believers in Jesus. 135,000 in one day. You might say, how can this possibly be? And that's just one example. But you can do the research for yourself. And it's not just Protestant writers who talk about this. It's not just secular writers who delve into the history of the Roman Church and say, this is what happened. It's also Catholic writers who objectively recognize these truths. And what is it that Jesus tells us? Matthew 7:15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. And when it's all said and done, historically, the cup which holds the blood of the saints is held itself by a woman who represents the Babylonian mystery religion church, ultimately, I believe, headquartered in Rome itself during the tribulation. This mystery Babylon will come to fruition itself, will bear fruit like it's never been seen before during the tribulation when the world centers around a one-world faith, a one-world church. And it will be centered, I believe, in Rome. Wait a minute, Rome, how do you know that? Read on, verse 7. The angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Verse 8. Now watch this carefully. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction oh that explains it perfectly (laughs) and those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come what is that saying? Who's riding who? Notice this. The woman was riding the beast, but now in verse 7, the beast carries the woman. We've seen a a subtle shift. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her. At first it seems early on in the chapter, the woman's in control. The woman's riding the beast, but now the beast is carrying the woman. The beast is taking the woman somewhere else. It seems like the beast may be using her for his own ends. Why am I saying that? Because there's something interesting here that may answer the question raised weeks back about Antichrist you may remember we looked at this back in Revelation 13 it tells us I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain Revelation 13 3 and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast so in Revelation 13 we ask the question is Antichrist actually going to be martyred, killed and then resurrected does Satan have the power to resurrect unto life no we know that only Jesus has that power and at the time we talked about that possibly it's just going to be a, a massive deception. But did Antichrist actually die? Will he actually die and come back to life? Look closely at how the angel describes Antichrist historically. Listen, he says, he was. He was. That is prior to this revelation. He was. And is not. In other words, if we're looking at it literally current to John receiving the revelation. You're John, you're talking to the angel, and the angel says, okay, Antichrist, he was. And he is not right now. And he is to come. The place is historically where John is hearing it, and it gives you some interesting ideas about what might be going on to. He was, he is not, and he is yet to come. That is after John wrote this down. It's a great mystery that we may be able to poke a little hole into tonight. Look at verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Wisdom. Which is Jesus' way of saying, think about it, process this, be wise, and you'll get it. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. What is the city of the seven hills? Rome. Rome. It's the only city of the seven mountains on the face of the planet. Historically, it's the only place it's ever been called, the city of the seven hills or the seven mountains. Here is wisdom, Jesus says, and we've seen this phrase before. Back in chapter 13, verse 18, I'll read it to you. He says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, here is wisdom. In other words, I'm going to reveal to you something of Antichrist. I'm going to show you, Jesus is saying, how to know who Antichrist is. You've been waiting for it. I'm going to tell you who Antichrist is. If you take the letters, it spells out Hillary... No, just kidding. (laughs) Look at verse 10. I knew she was a man. I hope that didn't get on the tape. Okay. (laughs) 10 reading on and watch this because we can figure something out here. It's very interesting. He says the seven heads are not only the seven mountains. So we're not only talking about a place, but we're talking about people. Watch. They are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. And, and he says, they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. So here's some wisdom for you. The seven hills are also seven kings. We're given a, kind of a dual picture here that's fascinating. Seven heads and oh, the seven mountains, seven kings are kings of that same city. Now again, let's be literal here. John's receiving the revelation; he's receiving it in this time frame. From John's perspective, here's what he hears: there are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. One is not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. What's being talked about here? Listen: seven kings. Julius Caesar, number one. Julius Caesar was assassinated in Rome. A king in the city of the Seven Hills. Julius Caesar, assassinated. Number two, Augustus Caesar, died of natural causes. Number three, Tiberius was poisoned. Number four, Caligula, stabbed to death. Number five, Claudius, smothered to death. Number six would be Nero, who committed suicide in prison by stabbing himself to death and number seven who was by the way alive when John wrote down the revelation one who is was the emperor Domitian seven kings one is five have been now if you're getting confused watch this after Domitian there were no more official emperors in Rome After Domitian's time, things began to break up and split apart, and they didn't have, they weren't Caesars like they were under Domitian as the last one. But listen, it says five are fallen. Five are fallen. And this was true as of John's point in time. Five were fallen. That is, five of these Roman emperors died of unnatural causes. Five fell in their death. Five of the seven. Which five are we talking about here? Julius Caesar, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. Those five emperors were either murdered or suicide. They died of unnatural causes. They were five who had fallen, literally. Seven kings. That was true as, as, as of John's writing, as we went through. Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Domitian. Seven kings. John is there, and there is Domitian. Five had fallen, one is that would be Domitian who was the emperor he's the one who stuck John on the rock he's the one who banished John to Patmos Domitian so one is you might say okay five have fallen one is that adds up to six and including Augustus there are a total of seven but one has not yet come and you might say well wait a minute if you add all of that up you should have eight there should be eight kings right are you tracking with me It should be 8 Read verse 11 The beast which was and is not Is himself also an eighth, And is one of the 7 And he goes to destruction Are you as confused as I was When I first read this He's the 8th king But he's also one of the 7 And he goes to destruction Huh? What are you saying? It doesn't make sense Unless you stop and process The beast is antichrist We've seen that but Antichrist is not only an eighth king, he was also one of the original seven. Okay? From John's perspective, how does this work? Of the original seven kings, the bloodiest, the most insane, the most off the charts, was a Caesar by the name of Nero. Caesar Nero. History and Scripture tells us that Paul, by the way, appeared before Nero. And after Paul appeared before Nero, we know this is true because of Acts 25 through 28. That whole section tells us that Paul, in fact, I'll read this to you, Acts 27 verse 24. Actually, let me go back a little bit. Verse 22. Paul is speaking to the men on, I believe, on the ship that, that they're on, and they're having some serious problems. They're in a serious uh, storm. And Paul says, Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage. There will be no loss of life among you, only of the ship. Acts 27, verse 23. He says, For this very night, an angel of of the Lord God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Now, you might say, Well, we have no record in Scripture of Paul being before Caesar Nero. Yeah, but the angel told Paul, You will stand before Caesar. You're going to Rome. So even though we don't have any more reference beyond that, we know it happened. We know it happened. Behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you so Paul says therefore keep up your courage men for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told Paul historically came before Nero and witnessed to him about Jesus Christ and historically it was right around this same time that Nero went nuts that Nero went ballistic against the Christians and began dipping them in hot wax hanging them up in his gardens lighting them on fire and calling them the light of the world but check this out. Go back to Revelation thirteen to eighteen. Just for a second. Revelation thirteen, eighteen. You guys are doing great tonight. Revelation thirteen, eighteen. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is six hundred and sixty six. Now, when we studied this before, we said, look, let's just be simple about this. All we know at this point, all we can understand is the number is the number of a man. And what we're being told here, that imperfect 666 and repeating never gets to 7. That's man. Without the Lord, we can never get to 7. We're imperfect. It's only the Lord that completes us, that will complete us unto that final day. But we're also told something here that we couldn't have understood until we get on over to chapter 17. Let him who has understanding calculate the number. Put it together. Think it through. Figure it out. So what's the point old Pastor John is trying to make here? Listen, in both, and we've talked about this, Greek and Hebrew languages, the letters are not just alphabet. They're also a numbering system. They're also the way that they counted. And in both Greek and the Hebrew languages, the letters are used as numbers. Aleph in the Greek is 1, Bet is 2, Gimel is 3, and so on through the Hebrew alphabet. When you add up (coughs) Caesar Nero's name in the Hebrew using the letters as numbers, each letter standing for a number, it equals 666. Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero. There's the identity of Antichrist, now you know. Wait a minute, what are you saying? Is it possible that Nero will emerge again as Antichrist? Let me be clear about this. I personally believe, and this is Rick, not the Lord, but I believe that it's possible that the spirit that was in Nero is the spirit of Antichrist, is the spirit that will possess the man that will be Antichrist as we read of him in Scripture. There is a point that Antichrist... That the spirit that that demonizes Antichrist, that, that, that possesses him, there is a point where that shifts and Satan himself indwells Antichrist. But the spirit, the spirit of Antichrist, I think may well be the same spirit that possessed Nero and brought about the slaughter of so many Christians under his rule. That same evil, perverted, persecuting spirit... Maybe the same spirit, not only in Nero, but later in Antichrist. Remember, this spirit, where does it come from? He comes up out of the abyss. The spirit of Antichrist, we're told, came up, go back to chapter 17. The beast you saw was, that is, in Nero, and is not, that is right now, John, Nero's dead, so the spirit is not uh, available, it's not around right now, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. So the spirit of Antichrist is going to come out of the abyss where he's been all this time. And I believe at that point will indwell Antichrist. It will be the same demonic spirit that dwelt in Caesar Nero. Now you might, if you think back, you might recall that I made a comment that Judas had the spirit of Antichrist. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So what is the real spirit of Antichrist? Let's bring this all together. The real spirit of Antichrist is religion. It's religion. It's the religious spirit. That spirit. You see, Nero didn't need the Jesus that Paul spoke of. That's religion. Judas couldn't stand weakness and so betrayed Jesus. That's religion. Cain, going all the way back, had to bring the fruit of his labor instead of the Lamb of God's doing, and that's religion. It all points to the same type of spirit. The spirit of Antichrist is a religious spirit. Read on verse 10, or 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. That is, for a very short period of time. And verse 13 says, These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So, in a very short amount of time, in the tribulation, ten world rulers, overseen, overthrown really, by Antichrist, and give all of his, all of their focus, their power, their kingdoms to the beast. Now, at this time, After their one purpose, they've given their power and authority to the beast. They have their authority for one short hour. And then, and then, after this, Jesus will appear on the scene. And all the world forces will be gathered together at Megiddo to turn their futile fury fury on Jesus. How do we know that? Continue on. These will wage war against the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them because he's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are with him... I really like this. Those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. That's you, by the way. The called, the chosen, the faithful. You're going to be with Him when He stamps out the world forces at Armageddon. You're going to be there. Cool. I'm in the Lord's army. Did you ever sing that when you were a kid? <laughs> and I may not fight in the inter- infantry, but man, I'm going to be there going, yeah! That's my Jesus. <laughs> no Jesus. I'll just stay back here on my horse. You go. <laughs> Read on verse 15. says, He said to me, The waters in which you sit, are where the harlot sits, uh, the wa- waters where you saw where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the chosen, the faithful, they're with Jesus when he returns. It's another biblical hint that we are there when he comes back. We're going to see that in chapter 19. But verse 15 again reminds us that this is a worldwide movement. This involves the world. The word, by the way, interesting, ecumenical, used often in Christianity, is derived from the Greek church, Greek term, oikomene, which means the whole inhabited world. The whole inhabited world. Now, understand this. I am all for unity among churches belonging to Jesus Christ. And we've talked about that. The bridge is not the only church in this region. There are many excellent churches around, and I'm all for us banding together for the sake of the kingdom to bring the word to people who need to hear the word. To bring salvation through Jesus Christ. And so we don't sit in judgment of other churches that claim and belong to Jesus. But what I'm not for is unity at the cost of compromising our belonging to Jesus Christ that's ecumenicalism that's saying you know what we're going to band together with anybody who calls himself a church like the world council of churches we're just going to be part of the big picture loosely connected and I'm sorry if you're not for Jesus you're not for the same Lord that I'm for that's where unity is found unity in the person and in the name of Jesus Christ I will unify with anybody who claims him as Lord and Savior absolutely and in that place salvation can come to the world. Jesus said in John 17:22, "The glory of which you have given me I have given to them, that they may become one, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me." And so unity is critical. But gang listen, Jesus himself never acted outside of the will of the Father. John 5:19. He said, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in a like manner. And so I follow up with that saying the church can, the church should never act outside of the will of Jesus. As long as we are functioning in the will of Jesus, man, I will unify with anybody. Once you stepped outside of the will of Jesus, we cannot be unified as brothers because we're not brothers Unless we're brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. But that's what religion does. Religion is all about acting outside of the will of Jesus. It's about denying His grace for ritual. It's about gaining works to secure a false sense of righteousness. And it plays right into the plan of the beast, which is to rage against the Lamb and what He did and His perfect, finished work at the cross of Calvary. Any work that we try to do beyond that for the sake of salvation or personal righteousness is false religion. And we are not called to religion. We are called to a life-walking relationship with Jesus. That's what He wants for us. That's what I want with Him. But look now at how the beast, which is world power, responds to the woman, which is world religion. The beast is world power. The beast is political power. The woman is world religion. That picture we've talked about of Semiramis of early Babylonian paganism and mysticism. But the beast responds to the woman when he's finished with her this way, verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Listen gang, people may be religious but ultimately people hate religion. And without naming any churches although I've named Roman Catholicism quite a bit tonight I have known many people who were religious in nature and hated going to church. Are you religious? Yeah, I'm church every Sunday. I hate it. It's so boring. Where are you going? Go somewhere where you can be joyful. Where you can experience some of the fruit of the Spirit. Where you can be in relationship with Jesus Christ. That's, that's fellowship. That's relationship. That's not religion. But religion... Religion is hated secretly all through the tribulation though Antichrist and the world leaders will seem to be in league here with Scarlet O Religion the world political power system and Antichrist ultimately are going to devour and destroy her. They will take and use religion for whatever they need until they no longer need religion and then she's done for. And then it's Antichrist the beast and the ten horns those world leaders who will devour and tear apart And eat the flesh of and burn up religion. Verse 18. Sorry, let's go to verse 17. Why will they do this? For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose. You know how often God has done that over history? He puts it into the heart of man to execute His purpose. This is exactly what He did with the Pharaoh. It was God's plan to get the people of Israel out at the same time to basically dethrone all the gods of Egypt. And it was his plan and he put it into the heart of Pharaoh to execute his righteous and perfect judgment. And so Pharaoh acted exactly how God intended for him to act. He's put it into their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose. And by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. And verse 18 says, The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Mystery Babylon is revealed, ravaged, razed, and ruined. Now, let's right, so Rick, okay, are you pointing to Roman Catholicism and calling it Mystery Babylon? The answer to that question at this point in our study is no. That's too easy. It's too easy to say it's the Catholics. They're the woman riding the beast, so stay away from the Catholics. It's them. <laughs> we know what they're doing, we know what they're up to, and we know where they're going. It's those Catholics. (laughs) It's far too easy to point a finger at a particular church and say, She's the woman who rides the beast. Now listen, I'm not going to defend the history or even the religiosity of Roman Catholicism. But what I'm saying is this. Religion, religion has infiltrated and infected mankind. Religion is the issue. And religion is what will be here during the tribulation. Religion ecumenical unifying bodies such as I've mentioned the World Council of Churches they're set up right now to play right into the hands of the beast. The apostate church that Jesus, Paul, Peter, Jude and John all wrote about and warned about is the very religious system much of which traces directly back to early Babylon itself where people like Nimrod and Semiramis sought to rebel against the one thing God wanted for his people and that was relationship. He just wanted to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's where it started. That's what we were created for. To move in the cool of the day with our Father. To be in relationship with Him. Relationship, by definition, requires that I need someone else. I can't have a relationship by myself. If I do, they put me in a loony bin. A relationship with yourself is crazy. But relationship requires, I need someone else. I have a relationship with my wife Cheryl. I need her. I have a connection there that's important to me. And relationships with many of you as, as, as friends, I need you. I need. Religion, by definition, requires that I only need myself. I can do it. I'm strong enough. I've got the power within me to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And that's why religion can't change a thing in this world. Only relationships can make the difference. That's why when we talk about evangelism here at the bridge, we're not talking about going out and training someone up in what we teach. We're talking about developing relationships with people and inviting them as friends and family to enjoy Jesus with you. That's evangelism. That's relationship. And that is what God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit desire with us. And only these three. Only this triune God has the strength that need, to do what needs to be done in the human heart. And Father, it's a relationship that we look for with You. It's a relationship that we desire and not religion. Father, I pray over the Great Bridge Christian Fellowship that for our time here, however long You have determined that we will be here until Jesus comes, whatever You decide to have happen, Lord, for our time, I pray... That you will cover this fellowship that we might never become religious. That we might never get caught up in religiosity and false piety. That we might not ever be concerned about the scarlet and the purple and the gold and the, and the jewels and the precious stones. That wherever we are, whatever we do and whatever you call us to, we be satisfied only with the filling of your spirit, the presence of Jesus among us. That we would find our joy not in physical things as religion does but in the spiritual things which is all about you. Lord, thank you. You've taken us through a tough chapter but I pray that we will take home tonight that sense that you want to walk with us. We talked about this morning. You were with us in the past. You're with us right now. You will be with us in the future. That's what we need. And we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.